Welcome to the show. I'm Sarah Lee, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Uh, on today's episode, and I hope you'll pardon us because we kind of threw this one together last minute, my colleague Mike Watson has written a really, really interesting magazine article for us um, about something that back in 2002 was called the uh, new emerging, the potentially new emerging Democratic majority. Um, so we decided kind of last minute we wanted to talk about this because obviously it's on everyone's minds. And you'll see why I say that in just a moment when we, when we start talking about it. So I'm just going to, you know, cut through it and uh, welcome Mike to the show. Hey, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me, Sarah. Sure. And Mike, if you don't know, he's the usual host. He's our research director here at Capital Research Center. Um, and I'm sure you know, if you listen to this podcast, you know who Mike is. Um, so I'm kind of sitting in the interview chair today, and we're going to talk about this article that Mike wrote. It's currently up at our uh, website. It's going to be in our magazine as well, but it's called The Thesis That Drove American Politics Crazy. And if you go to the Capital Research Center, capitalresearch.org website, you can see it. Uh, if it's not there on the front page, uh, just go into the archive and you'll find it. Um, basically, I'll set it up and then I'm going to let Mike kind of talk. Um, these two very liberal uh, sort of pundits and thinkers back in 2002, post-George W. Bush election, wrote a book called The New, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, The New Emerging... Just, just, the, just the Emerging Democratic Majority. Okay, the Emerging Democratic Majority. And what they uh, proposed was that um, Democrats were about, they were on the cusp of a permanent majority. And they had all of this sort of data to back it up. Uh, the gentleman's names uh, are John Judas and Rui Teixeira. I think I've got his name right. And cut to 10 years later or something and things still sort of looked good for them uh, in the Obama years. But since Trump and post-Trump, things have sort of, that th that theory has kind of fallen apart. So, Mike, did I set that up properly before I ask you a few questions? You set it, you set it up mostly properly. Okay. Uh, they and I would quibble with the word permanent. Okay. Uh, they explicitly took like a 10-year horizon. They were looking, they were forecasting from this demographic data over a period of about 10 years. And what that, now you tell liberals that, you know, you guys are gonna have an advantage for 10 years. What they hear is we have a permanent majority. Uh, and so you get like James Carville after Barack Obama gets elected president the first time, you know, 40 more years, how the Democrats will rule the next generation is his title. Barack Obama, I think this was after his re-election, when mm -hmm. basically people took the emerging Democratic majority as a Bible, mm -hmm. uh, that it was, that it had predicted everything. It hadn't. We'll get to that. Um, you know, but it had predicted a lot. Uh, and clearly the dynamics that Judas and Teixeira uh, were writing about uh, had carried the day, at least had, you know, were, were in the process of carrying the day uh, for the Democratic Party. And... And something uh, along the way actually changed Teixeira's mind, right? So what has happened to well, him? Well, from, from, from 2012 to 2022, you know, now beyond the horizon, things changed. Because, and part of the, the reason is that 
the parties changed and the, how the parties reacted to the political developments that they were seeing, a lot of which were discussed in the emerging democratic majority or were dis, you know, were, were talked about in it. Uh, you had uh, a Republican Party that, especially in Donald Trump's first campaign, broke with laissez-faire orthodoxy, broke with the the free market entitlement reform. I mean, you think about the Romney-Ryan campaign. Uh, you know, Ryan, you know, was big. We got to fix entitlements. Entitlements are broken. They're going to bankrupt us. We need to do something. We need to do something now. Uh as somebody who generally supports that policy position, I recognize that it is as politically popular as, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> uh, something that's not popular. <laughs> something that's very not popular. I, you know. Okay, so, um, so let's talk about this for a second, though. Let's back up. So to, to Shara, and, and we can get back into that, he's kind of flipped the script a little bit. He's moved from Center for American Progress to AEI, which has always yes, been center right. Yes, and that's what and that's what and that's what prompted me to write the piece. Uh okay. to, to he's still a liberal. He's he hasn't, you know, changed his politics so far as anyone has so far as he said. But, you know, he's a you know, uh, our colleague Ken Braun talks about this in with the 1619 project and the fact that it gets Trashed by the World Socialist website. Is you that know, your dog in the background? I'm sorry. Yes, that is my. That is my. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Sorry. Um, uh, the the World Socialist website guys, and to a lesser extent, Teixeira. Teixeira is not a Trotskyite. He's just a great society liberal. Um, they are their formal. Their first focus in thinking about politics is a class lens. You have capital. You have labor. You have the capital class, you have the working class, you know, and they're in perpetual struggle and, you know, all that, all that stuff. Uh, but what is ascendant, again, in part because of the political analysis in the emerging democratic majority and that the emerging democratic majority sort of is the urtext of, uh, is there's this ascendant racial and ethnic analysis. Oh, they absolutely embraced that on the, on the progressive left. They embraced that. And you go into that in this, in this article. Right. In, in a, in, to a degree, progressives read the emerging democratic majority and read the analysis that under, that underlies it and said, that's pretty cool. We should make all this ethnic stuff, the focus of our politics, because that's going to make this Democratic majority emerge and then remain past the 10-year window. Right. And something strange happened. You know, we spoke about this before we started recording. There's all this discussion um, right now in our sort of immediate political climate about a new right. The new right's doing this. I think Biden was really clear about it um, in his speech. He calls it the MAGA Republicans, but it's essentially the alt-right, the new right, whatever they want to call it. Um, But what your article sort of gets at is that there might actually be a new left. And that's partially why this uh, emerging Democratic majority didn't happen. Yeah, I, I mean, there's sort of two points to that. The, there's the, the sort of like true alt-right, the really nuts, crazy people are a small, you know, are a tiny fraction and are only notable when they commit crimes, really. Right. 
or, or profess to speak for conservatism and yeah yeah or, or profess are just to like what that guy doesn't or, speak yeah for or profess to speak or profess to speak to people who, who they don't actually speak for um to the extent there's a new right it's moderated some of the things that Tishera thought were going to be you know electoral albatrosses for the republican party uh like I, we mentioned entitlement reform um you know donald trump was very entitlements will stay as they are. Um, the and meanwhile, there has been the left has taken this big step on cultural issues to the left, epitomized uh, probably by the 1619 project as much as anything else. Um, but it's funny. Uh, let me pull it up. Let me pull up what I the direct quotation um, in in the book. Uh, uh, Judas and Teixeira write this and they're writing again in 2002 and really the subtext is this is about creationism in schools in search of votes the conservative republicans of the 1980s made a devil's pact with religious fundamentalists that entailed their indulgence of crackpot religious notions while Democrats have opposed the imposition of sectarian religious standards on science and public education, the Republicans have tried to make science and science education conform to Protestant fundamentals. The moment I read that, I thought about this. If you replace religious with ideological, you flip the references to Democrats and Republicans, you change the year, and you may switch conservative and Protestant to cultural left, this description of the creationism debate could be a debate about critical race theory. That uh, yes, I agree. That that it's a, you know, it, I got again obviously with the religious with the creationism it was you know uh, a certain sect of Protestants, uh, but now with the critical race theory it's the it is a wing of a political movement uh, that is trying to get what are indistinguishable in effect from sectarian standards into the public schools and that that changes the dynamics of the political analysis that Judish and Teixeira made. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned this, you know, that, that that's the quote that, that kind of sparked your thinking about this because there there is a, a sort of subset of people, certainly on the left, also on the right, but I think the left, at least right now, the way that they've behaved over the last several years, that sort of approaches politics with a fervor that's near religious. <laughs> and there's also a, so that's an interesting insight that you had. And there's also this sort of strange inability to sort of self-reflect right now on the left, which I think is partially what you kind of, without overtly saying that, you're kind of getting to that place in this article because you're, and I think I do want to talk about Sean Trende because he saw all of this coming. But this, this sort of going too far, not realizing that they're becoming the thing that they profess the other side is doing, uh, maybe realizing it and not caring. I don't know. I'm not in their you heads on you the mentioned trendy and You mentioned Trendy, and that actually gets into sort of what Trendy's analysis was, is that you can't have a stable majority because everybody thinks when they win, they've won forever. It's right. just a natural human, it's a natural human instinct. You know, everybody, you know, your team wins the championship. You immediately think we're going to win next year's championship and the championship the year after that and the championship the year after that. And so, you know, you know, like in professional sports where you aren't turning the whole team over every four years. Right. Um, you know, and, 
you know, sometimes that, I mean, sometimes you're the Yankees of the 1920s, but sometimes you're the Florida Marlins of 1997. Yeah, sometimes you buy a championship, as they say. Or or sometimes you just straight up fluke one. I mean, Leicester City in English soccer, (laughs) who are currently in, you know, won the championship a couple years ago. Now they're in last place. Right. (laughs) Yeah, sports like politics, you know, I think you said it best in your piece where you're like, history hasn't been written, essentially. Yeah, yeah. There, there There are no sides. There is no end of history. There is no end to history. It's just, and what, you know, one of part of Trendy's analysis, some of the substrate of Trendy's analysis is that one of the things that political movements do when they win is they overreach. They just, it's innate. It's inherent. It's, you know, it, it's, you know, for those of a religious bent, it's original sin. It just is what it is. <laughs> well, and again, religion comes up again. And I think that's interesting because I just was looking at some of my notes here. And you, there's one part in your article. And this is a four-parter, guys. It's pretty long. It's really good. Easy read. For as long as it was, I was shocked. I was like, this is actually a very easy read. You're a good writer, Mike. Um, but there's one part where you say, essentially, the Democrats began at some point to... Uh, or the progressives in search of this, you know, progressive centrism, I think is what they call it, began to kind of rule by fear. Maybe rule is a too strong a word. That's that's an interest that let me let me sort of deconstruct and reconstruct that. So progressive centrism was Judas and Teixeira's prescription to progressives and Democrats to this is how you win elections. Mm -hmm. You keep to the, you know, the center left on cultural issues, you know, uh, they don't use the term, but remember Bill Clinton's old slogan on abortion, safe, legal, and rare. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you want to show that you want to bind up the wounds of race, not exploit them, uh, you know, and support the the new professional woman in her uh, desire for uh, a, a life outside the home, uh, in addition to a liberal position on immigration, which is for which the book is most remembered. Um, and we haven't even gotten to the autopsy yet. Yeah, yeah we haven't even gotten to um, But where, after Obama got reelected, what kind of went to liberals' heads was that instead of I mean, I, I discussed this in the piece, you know, some guy from the Open Society Foundations goes, you know, it's the demography stupid. Mm-hmm. Like Carvel back in the day, it's the economy stupid. Uh, and that they could just ride on the votes of these demographics uh, and that they would just all, and they would just kind of have them by default. And that meant that they could go as far left as they wanted without any sort of, without real fear of reprisal. And then you know, you get to 2016 and, you know, Mark Tushnet, this Harvard lawyer, basically expounds the id of the progressive movement that, you know, the culture wars are over, you know, Antonin Scalia has passed away, uh, you know, Merrick Garland has been nominated and is being blockaded in the Senate, uh, Hillary Clinton looks like she's going to win the 2016 election, uh, you know, Progressives have won the culture wars. It's time to act like it, you know. And again, he he's making open comparisons to, you know, how we treated the the Japanese and the Germans after we won World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, again, going and, too far. Always going and, too far. And you know, while that 
you know, who knows how many people actually read that article. One of them was Sean Trendy, uh, who discussed it in, in one of his, in his sort of explanatory, uh, piece on the 2016 election and why the emerging democratic majority cracked. Um, and it's that, you know, even if they didn't read that article, they could smell, you know, they could sense the, you know, evangelical voters could sense that if they did not seek the protection of somebody like Donald Trump, there would be no protection coming for them. Right. So maybe it's not that they began to rule by fear. It's that people got scared because people got scared. Talk people a got lot scared. about the norms and the norms were just eroding, right? That's people, that was people sort got, of what people happened. Got, people got scared. I mean, again, you had at the time, you know, Indiana passes a basic a law that basically was intended to say you don't have to participate in a gay marriage if you're a or in a same-sex marriage if you're a uh, you know believing Christian who has a problem with it. Corporate America goes to DEFCON one. Mike Pence, then the governor, backpedals, and you have the media going out and looking for I think it was Memories Pizza. Mm-hmm. You know this random pizza joint that said, yeah, we're going to take advantage of this legislation. We like it. And then, you know, they become the focus of a two-minute hate. Uh, right. Okay. So let's talk. So that's where we are now. And I do think that the current incarnation of the Democrat Party, which has embraced the sort of squad left um, and only made people more scared that the norms are falling away, because let's face it, and we'll get into this in just a second with the question I'm about to ask you. But the the average American voter is is really on both sides of the political aisle is less uh, is more centrist, I think, in some ways than what you see in, you know, Washington. Um, in other words, they have I'd different needs. Yeah, I, I'd say they're more economically liberal than I would like, but they're more socially conservative than certainly most Democrats would like. Yeah, and they don't, you know, average people don't, politics doesn't consume their lives. So they're even on both sides, they're much more likely to just be like, that's what they think politically, but that's my neighbor, I have to get along, that kind of thing. In D.C., we forget that. Everything's very political and it's very, you know, charged all the time. So um, the question then that I have, and now I've lost it, but it has to do with after uh, this um, sort of report from Judas and Teixeira came out, the RNC uh, created a document that they called the autopsy, where it, it is kind of a blueprint for what some on the right right now would call like the squishy conservatism, right? Like um, mm-hmm. they wanted to work across the aisle and they were willing to uh, debate things like immigration in ways that I think the average conservative didn't like. So talk right. a little so bit about that and how that is sort of reflective of the sort of differences uh, between the the average conservative voter out in the world who voted for Trump versus what the RNC and maybe the the GOP in um, you know DC and other places and blue cities and places like that where they're still trying to work across the aisle talk about how all of that relates. Right. So in 2012, obviously Barack Obama gets reelected, and he gets reelected. It is perceived on the strength of his support with Hispanic voters, his support with uh, single women. This is the sort of the, the people who were supposed to resonate with the life of Julia ad. 
Um, I remember that I, ad. Yeah, and I am, I am forgetting. I am forgetting the third group. Uh, yeah, I may have been the young. I may have been young voters. Mm-hmm. Um, and this looked like a a big sort of win for Judison Teixeira's theory uh, that the, you know the Democratic majority had emerged. Um, but and based on that, uh, sort of internalizing that analysis that the you know the Republican Party would never win an election again unless got more votes from Hispan- you know from Hispanics and Asians these sort of new immigrant communities who are perceived as very liberal on immigration uh, you know without more support from professional class women never win an election again and of course the purpose of a political party's existence is to win elections mm-hmm. um, and so they issue this autopsy which is supposedly how did we lose um the and one of its conclusions, probably best known conclusion, best remembered conclusion, is that the Republican Party needs to get immigration off the table by making a bunch of concessions to progressives. Mm-hmm. Uh, comprehensive immigration reform in the uh, in the parlance. And someone uh, very famously publicly took that to task. Uh, yeah, some guy from New York lives in a lives in a big tower. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no prizes for guessing who that person is. Of course, Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and what? So again, getting back to to Sean Trendy, who is sort of seen as the the critic, even though he's actually very respectful of Judas and Teixeira's analysis uh, in the main. Uh, you know, he proposed not as a recommendation; uh, didn't align with his policy preferences so far as he has expanded them publicly. Um, that a Republican party that just wanted to win elections could actually do something else than what was proposed in the autopsy, which is basically stay as economically conservative, laissez-faire as you are now, uh, but liberalize on immigration. Here you get into sort of issues of the Mitch Daniels social issues truce. Uh, and, but there's another way that you could that you could approach it. You could look at the data, look at the, the voting data and realize that turnout in the places that voted most strongly for Ross Perot, who is this, you know, populist, uh, not, not a religious sectarian figure, very sort of neutral on the whole, on the... D- and a DC outsider. I think that's... And, and a, a, a DC outsider, a rich guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm going to cut the deficit by raising taxes on the wealthy. I'm going to stop this North American free trade agreement uh, that at that time, you know, George H.W. Bush was negotiating and Bill Clinton would ultimately advance. Um, and, you know, a lot of people and it's a sort of a diagonal from about Syracuse, New York to Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, you know, a lot of people on that diagonal liked it. And, and voted for voted for Ospro. And you could, you know, be a bit, you know, if you were a Republican and you were a bit more America first on trade, a bit more militant on immigration restriction, uh, a bit more uh, populist in your economic message, uh, you could maybe get these people back, these so-called missing white voters. Um, and if that sounds familiar, it should. 
because that's basically what Donald Trump ran on. And, it is. And, 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 and it changed and electoral, the GIP. And his electoral college majority, you know, think of, you know, Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio, uh, West Virginia, which Judison Teixeira thought was going to be a, a leaning Democratic state because the white working class, the Judician Teixeira thought that if the Democrats followed their, po- their preferences, their progressive centrism, again, more economically liberal, more socially centrist, that the white working class would come back to the Democrats. And that uh, didn't happen. They went to Trump. And I think what's interesting is that, yeah, Trump changed, that sort of changed the calculus because even the emerging, uh, you know, even if Trump decides not to run, the emerging popular candidates are still sort of populist in that way. They're still talking about some of those issues. Oh, sure. Uh, DeSantis comes to mind. And what's even, you know, sort of more refuting to the autopsy is that, you know, Donald Trump did better with uh, non-white voters, with ethnic minority voters in 2020 losing than Mitt Romney did in 2012 losing. Uh, you know, it was probably Latinos who kept Florida in the red column in 2020. Right. And I think that that came out in your piece, too. And it was very interesting. Um, and we'll wrap it up here in just a second because we've gone over time. But, uh, you know, this this sort of hubris, I think, and it, and it's in this case, we're talking about the Democrats, but the Republicans yeah, do it, too. This yeah, sort of the, hubris the, about demographics, you know, well, the Judas and Teixeira were absolutely positive that the Hispanic vote was going to go What's amazing way. about emerging Democratic majority and demographic, and you know, the sort of demographic projection is that it caused the Democrats great hubris, like you said, that they, again, thought we, we just have to wait and mm-hmm. will come to us. And we're going to put the Republicans in a bind because they're either going to have to cave on immigration and give us more voters or they're going to have to fight it. And then they'll vote, you know, all the demographics that don't like immigration restriction are going to vote for us. And it caused the Republicans panic and just, you know, a, a, what what you would call like in an army, a collapse of morale. (laughs) Um, And what, again, the, oddly racially depolarized 2020 election showed (laughs) is that you can't project these things out forever. And what Teixeira and and Judas, if you had asked them, you know, not only now, but years ago, they would have said, yeah, you can't project this out forever. You know, you know. We were talking about sports, using sports analogies, which I always, I think sports analogies are perfect for almost anything. And this sort of does remind me of sort of the debate in baseball between sabermetrics and just the sort of uh, intangible elements of a certain player in a certain, you know, clubhouse with a certain team that you can't measure. Um, And that's kind of what this feels like. Judas and Teixeira had their data, but as Trenda said, it's events that matter in politics, right? Right. right. It's, 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 events, it's events and whether a party, a candidate is there to capitalize them. So if you're Donald Trump and the issue and the Syrian civil war has just happened and German chancellor, Angela Merkel has invited and frankly, anybody into Europe and the Europeans are all debating it, you know, my international migration comes front front to the fore 
you're the one guy standing out on it, that gives you an advantage. If you're in 2020, you're Joe Biden, you're, you know, you're not Elizabeth Warren running on a, I'm going to do everything on the liberal wish lists, uh, on the liberal wish list on day two. Uh, you know, you're not Bernie Sanders, you're not an open socialist. Uh, you're running, you know, I'm going to restore decency, I'm going to restore norms, I'm going to be liberal, sure, but I'm going to be liberal in a way that everybody recognizes. You know, liberal in the way that Barack Obama was liberal, liberal in the way that John Kerry would have been liberal if he had been elected in 2004. You know, liberal in a way that Al Gore would have been if he had been elected in 2000. Liberal, you know, maybe a little more liberal than Bill Clinton. Uh, liberal that Bill Clinton would have been if Newt Gingrich hadn't been elected in 1994. Right. Newt wasn't <laughs> right just so he could save his life. Know. You know, his political life, I should say. Right. The, the, so, you know, but again, liberal in a recognizable way. Um, and I'm going to make everything normal. You know, you've had four years of the Trump show. It's been crazy. Now it's COVID. It's even crazier. I'm going to make life not crazy, not crazy anymore. Um, you know, if those things really don't... have gone that direction, though, have they? I, whether, I, I leave to the reader whether or not that is how the Biden administration is actually governed. But, you know, if that's what you're offering, the electorate may be in a buyer's mood. And it's a man, you know, so it's events, it's a candidate and a party meeting the moment. And, you know, if you look at if. You can tell a story of the 2012 election that's basically the emerging Democratic majority emerged. There's another story of the 2012 election, which is that Barack Obama's campaign was technically adept and very skilled, and Romney and Ryan, their challengers, did not meet the moment. Uh, I I would say that's a fair assessment. But then, interestingly, and I think that your article goes into this, and, and we'll wrap it up here, uh, interestingly, um, things were happening behind the scenes that uh, weren't really talked about in the media, weren't really prognosticated much about, except by people like Sean Trende, um, where that that uh, that Democrat majority was already breaking down, even as it was emerging. So it's the good news and the bad news is that you cannot predict politics. <laughs> yep. yep. You, you really you, can't. We're, we're all... You know, we're all feeling the elephant. Uh, right. <laughs> maybe, okay, well, again, maybe you're right, maybe you're not. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, don't beat yourself up if you're wrong. And, you know, feel real, don't feel too great about it if just, you're right. Just, because... just, avoid, just avoid hubris. Must always exactly. avoid hubris. I think that's the lesson here. Okay, so um, just to remind you guys listening, uh, the article in question is at capitalresearch.org, written by our research director, Mike Watson. It is called The Thesis That Drove American Politics Crazy, The Emerging Democratic Majority. Mike, thank you so much for taking time today and talking to me about this for the podcast. Happy to, Sarah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Please do give us five stars and any likes you can wherever you find your podcast, and we will see you next week.